to turn with me to Revelation chapter 3. And we've talked and called today, wake up. Now, if this was turn your clocks ahead an hour, it would be a little more of an appropriate message, wake up. But I think you all are awake physically. Um, Has anybody ever lived with someone who sleepwalks in your house? Has anybody ever lived with somebody, a sleepwalker in your house? It's a weird experience, right? If you've never experienced this, we had one of our children. I don't ever like to really mention who they are, except I will tell you that they were on stage this morning. who was a sleepwalker for several years. It's a very strange experience because you're used to getting up and helping your kids. You know, in the middle of the night, something comes on, you hear somebody upset, you go, you go try to address it with them. Um, but when you go to address someone who's sleepwalking, th- their eyes are open, they even say words, they make noises, they're moving around, they're shaking their head no, but they don't know what they're doing. And so like we have this one who's very, very upset, like almost screaming, crying. And like, what's what's the matter? What's the matter? And it's just like, we can't get, very quickly we realize they're not awake. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they're saying. They say you shouldn't wake a sleepwalker up. We couldn't wake the sleepwalker up. We were like, wake up, come on, let's go. Right back to bed. There are stories in the Bible about people being asleep And that sleep making them vulnerable when they normally would not be. People of great strength, warriors. There's a man in the Bible named Samson. One of the most physically powerful men who ever lived. You read some of the things that he did and you're like, blow my mind. How did he do that? How was Samson taken down? In his sleep. Now I know he got his hair cut, but his hair was cut in his sleep, right? We read a story about David and and his men going into the camp of Saul. David with just one of his men, two men marching to the center of an entire army's camp. And that whole army is out there for the express purpose of killing David. How do two men walk in and through an entire army that they have no hope of defeating? Everybody's asleep. It doesn't take away their strength, but it deactivates it, right? Because they are not aware of the danger or the threat that is there. And so therefore they are not able to respond to it. So their strength is immobilized. It is useless because they are asleep. The question today from this letter to this church, this is the, the fifth church. We have two other churches. We have a letter to the church in Philadelphia, which is not about the Phillies. And then we have a letter to the church of Laodicea. So we're going to get to those two um, in the coming weeks. But today's church church is a, a, a letter to the church in Sardis. And the question from today's letter is simply this. Are you asleep spiritually? What does it look like to be asleep spiritually? How would you know? Actually, the letter is written to an entire church. So the the big picture of this letter is all of us together. Are we asleep as a church? What does a sleeping church look like? And maybe before I get to what it looks like and whether or not we are, maybe one of the big things we need to hold on to, we need to get inside of us here, is how seriously Jesus takes it when we are asleep spiritually. What are the effects of being asleep 
spiritually. Think about that sleepwalker. You're there, but you're not interacting with what your eyes are seeing, with what your ears are hearing, with what your body is doing. Spiritually, what it means is that we have set aside the spiritual world, spiritual value, the spiritual life that we have because we got stuff to do in this world. Does that describe anybody? Maybe some of you are just okay with slapping Christian on top of like every other identity of yours, but you're not actually living for Christ in any meaningful way. You are asleep. Jesus would even call you dead. And he would say, you can't afford to stay that way. In doing that, in, in setting aside our spiritual life and the power of God, we set aside the power for this life and the purpose of our very being here. Some of us feel so exhausted and so weary and so frustrated. And you know why? Because you're asleep. You're trying to walk through this life in your strength, with your ideas, with your plan. You're trying to make life what you think it should be. And Jesus keeps trying to wake you up. If you want to live a life that you'll be glad to talk about with Jesus one day, you can't shrug off being asleep. And church, if you believe this world is hurting and lost and dark, then what the church needs is for, or what the world needs is for the church to be awake for the power that is in us to start to flow through us so that this world knows that there is a savior and there is hope and there is life and there is healing in the name of Jesus, right? And if you think that's melodramatic and over the top, probably asleep. I think it's long past time that we wake up. So we're going to read this letter. And I, before I read the letter, I want to tell you a little bit about Sardis. Just like as we read each letter, I think it's important to know kind of what's going on in this city, what the history of the city. And as I, I want to tell you four things about Sardis because they, they very much flow into what, what Jesus says, the pictures that Jesus chooses to use in this letter. All right. So number one, Sardis, very interesting city. They are the first city that claimed to discover how to dye wool, how to be able to say, here's some wool that we're going to make into clothes, but we want it to be blue or we want it to be green or whatever. And they, would, they were the ones who just figured out how to make wool the color that they wanted to make it. Later on, Jesus talks in this letter about white robes, about undyed clothing. And so there's a very direct connection between their ability to choose what color they want their clothes to be and Jesus talking about them wearing white robes. Number two, the first minted gold and silver coins were made in this city at Sardis. The first minted silver and gold coins in the world were made here. And it was because this was a city of such great wealth. They had gold and silver. Previous to this, people didn't really think about making gold and silver into coins because there wasn't very much of it. But these guys had so much of it that they started making it into coins so they could buy and sell stuff with it. As a matter of fact, there's a saying that in, in antiquity was pretty famous. It's still kind of said sometimes today, as rich as Croesus. I don't know if you've ever heard that saying, but that is a saying about the king of Sardis who was so rich that everybody's like, oh, you're so rich, you're as rich as King Croesus. They thought because they were so wealthy, I don't know if this is 
applicable anyway, so I'll just mention it. You guys can tell me. They thought they were so wealthy that they were indispensable, that they were important because they had a lot of stuff. That without them, this world would suffer greatly because they were so, so rich and important. Third thing about this city, and this is really interesting. I hope that I can do justice to this. This city sat on top of a, a, a mountaintop. Three sides of that mountain were cliffs, and there was only one path in to this city. And because of that, they thought they were impenetrable. They thought that they were as safe as could possibly be. And as you walked up to the city, everybody agreed that nobody can get into that city. But this city was shockingly defeated twice because those in the city were overconfident of their natural defenses. It's really important that you understand how confident they were in their natural defenses because then you can understand the impact of Jesus' statements about waking up. So let me just tell you kind of what happened. The first time that the city was defeated, King Croesus was the king. He had gone to war against the Persians around 540 BC and he got defeated in the battle. So he ran home to his fortress and he came and the Persians chased him home from this battle. He goes up into his city, he closes the gates, and he's so sure that they're secure that he goes to bed. Only to wake up in the morning and find the Persians destroying his city. And the reason the Persians destroyed his city is because he sent his entire army to guard the one way into the city, and the Persians decided to climb up the cliffs. And if just one person had been looking out over the cliffs, they would have been easily demolished. But not one lookout was sent to look at any of the three natural cliffs because they were so sure they were okay. And instead of being alert, they were asleep and it brought their destruction. Literally, no one was watching. They never put a watch on those walls, convinced the cliffs themselves would be enough. Now, you would think that that should be a lesson learned, but about 300 years later, the exact same thing happened. Another army came and they watched only the main way into the city and they hired people who climbed up the cliffs and defeated the city. Fourth thing I want to tell you about the city is this. It was destroyed uh, by an earthquake in about 17 AD. It was rebuilt by a Roman empire and became part of the empire. And they, because they were part of the Roman empire, they adopted a God that was their patron God. And it was the God of restoring the dead to life. It was the God who was said to, as part of their hot springs and things like that, it was the God who was said to restore the dead to life. So let's read this letter. Verse, uh, we'll start in chapter three. Just verse one, it says this. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Comes to the church of Sardis and he just comes right into it. There's no praise. Every other church or most of the other churches, he has something good to say about them. This church, he starts right in. There's no praise here. Goes straight to the problem. And what he says to them is this. You have a reputation. You have a reputation for being alive. So think about, now Jesus says, everybody around this church 
thinks that they are alive. Other churches in the area think they are alive. Why would other churches think that? Why would the, the people around them think that? Well, what does that look like? It probably meant they had a, a, a lot of people in their church. It probably meant they had you know, things to do and they were naturally in the conversation. They had high visibility. Maybe today we would think about them having a big building or a lot of influence, name recognition. In other words, this would be a church that looked enviable. Man, they have it together. Look at all the stuff that they have. Jesus says, you look alive, but you're dead. They have all kinds of movement. They have all kinds of activity, but what are they missing? When you read that passage, what do you think they're missing? When he says, you look alive, but you're dead. It's spiritual health, isn't it? It's spiritual life. They've got the, the, the every, every appearance of it looks like, oh, they're going great. And as they, as they hear this message from Jesus, I think they were shocked. They're like, wait a minute, what are you talking about? We've got nursery. We've got a worship team. We're good. We got all this stuff going on. We're supporting missionaries. Everything's fine. Everything's fine. Jesus is like, no, it looks fine, but you're asleep. You are dead inside. It wasn't alive in the way that counts. It looked healthy and alive, but it wasn't alive in the way that it counts. They, Jesus says they are dead. It's a figure of speech that's meant to describe the problem that Jesus sees. What is a dead church? And are we a dead church? It seems that a dead church isn't necessarily what we think. It seems that a dead church is not a church which attendance is dropping, a church where the offerings are dropping, a church where it kind of feels low energy on Sunday. It doesn't feel like it's any of that because none of that described this church. You have a reputation of being alive. What Jesus said is your problem is you're looking at the wrong place to defend. You're looking at the wrong proof. Your eyes are on the wrong things. You have decided this means you're alive, but you are not. You think it's external but it's internal. P.S. All the other churches we've seen have had external problems come their way. They're getting persecuted. People are coming after them to put them to death. And Jesus says, hold on, hold on. Don't worry about it. I've got you, right? Or they've got false teaching in their midst. Someone's saying something and Jesus is like, you can't let that person say that. This church has neither of those problems. This church is just convinced that they're fine because everything looks okay. They can show a good show to other people. The problem is this. They are doing spiritual things without the spirit. They are people who have let go of spiritual life. One of the things that chills me to the bone is to think that we could do a service on Sunday morning or we could do discipleship or small group or Wednesday night Bible study or youth group or kids ministry and it didn't matter whether the Spirit showed up or not. You know that there is no point to us getting together here. There is no point to worshiping. There is no point to calling ourselves a church of Jesus Christ if the Spirit of God is not at work here, right? I don't care how gifted I might be or anybody else might be, we cannot overcome a lack of the Spirit, and actually, if I don't have any talent at all, but the Spirit is working, that's when a church is alive, right? That's what we want. Is the Spirit at work here? Is He moving? Does He have control? 
Are we living in the life and the power of the Spirit or not? I think those questions get a little more practical when we say this. Is our church a reflection of his work or our plans? Is it about his name or our reputation? Is it about the power of Almighty God or the strength of us? Maybe the way we sum that up most clearly is, is this about his kingdom or our kingdom? This church seems alive, but they are dead. Then Jesus goes on, verses two and three. He says this, wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember therefore what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what time I come to you. Seems like what Jesus says is pretty simple here. There are two options for a sleeping church. Wake up or be woken up. What's it look like for a church to wake up? I think the answer to that lies in what it means to be spiritually dead or asleep. In this letter, Jesus uses the, the metaphors of being dead and being, being asleep. Today, we're kind of focusing on the one of being sleeping and, and waking up. Being dead has implications too, but it's not dead like they're not saved. It's more dead like a, a tree in the winter is dead and then has the opportunity to come back to life. It's that kind of dead. You're fruitless. You're barren. So wake up. Take a look at the spiritual fruit in your life. Are you alive spiritually? Are you able to handle whatever comes your way with hope? Is peace ruling your soul? Do you know what you're here for? Do you know what this is about? Do you know what you're living for? Do you know what it's worth giving your life to? Or are you lost? Have you forgotten? Has it gotten all confused in your life and in your head? What does it look to wake like to wake up. But what does it look like to be woken up? What does it look like for Jesus to come wake you up? You know what I think? Most of us, Jesus has come and awakened us at times. We may not have put that label on it, but you know what I'm talking about. A crisis showed up where it felt like the world was caving in on you, right? A loss that felt like you could never get past it, that felt like the very essence of the core of your life was gone and you couldn't get it back. You forgot who you were. You were surprised that the sun came up in the morning. What does it look like for Jesus to come and wake us up? It looks like pain. It looks like trial. It looks like uncertainty. And then he says to you, in the, if you're a believer, if you're not a believer, you're just like, why do you hate me, God? But if you're a believer, he comes to you in the middle of that and he says, now what are you trusting in? Where's your hope? Do you really believe? Or are you just playing a game? See, this is how Jesus comes and wakes us up. He invites us to wake up ourselves, to decide to live in the power of the Spirit, to decide to live for the kingdom of heaven. But if we don't, if we get lost, if we're wandering around and we're just powerless and, and confused and hopeless and wandering around complaining all the time and wondering why is life so unfair, Jesus is like, let me shake you and wake you up. Jesus says to this church, Wake up, or I will come and wake you up. 
Do you see why I'm saying this is the difference between living in the flesh and living in the spirit? He says to them, you have a reputation, but this isn't about your reputation. A church that is dead or a church that is dying, a church that is asleep, is very concerned with what people think of them and whether or not they appear successful. If we're going to use our measure of whether or not we're successful at how many people like us or how many people come, see, that's a false measure. I'm not saying that when the Spirit's at work that you don't see those things, but it has to be the Spirit at work that produces them. You cannot, you cannot bypass that thing to like, oh, look at how popular we are. It has to be the Spirit doing it, His point, His purpose. And it isn't about their performance. A church that is dying is one that keeps doing better and better so that they will look better and better. They are convinced that they can do everything it takes to make a difference. It's their strength. It's their plans. It's their power. They are wrapped up in the things that should come from being spiritually alive, but they're trying to do those things without spiritual life. So I don't know if you've recognized this, but on Sunday morning when we get together, we do two things before I ever come up here to speak. We worship and we pray. Do you understand some of the, the intentionality of that is for us to be like spirit of God. Come do your work in me. Maybe all week long, I thought it was all about me. It was all on my shoulders. It was all about what I was trying to navigate and do. But when I get here, I'm trying to refresh myself in something that I should live the whole week in, which is, God, if you don't do it in me, then don't let it be done. God, if this is not your plan, then you stop me. God, if this is your plan, no matter how scared I am of it, let me walk forward in confidence into it. Right? This is where spiritual life is. This is what it means to be alive. It isn't about what I can do that looks spiritual or I can slap the spiritual label on it. This is about what he's doing in me. Sleeping happens when we keep going through the motions of Christianity without walking by faith. And, and I, the big point for me, this, the passion for me behind this is this. A church that is asleep, a believer that is asleep is one that has supernatural power, but just isn't using it. Like Samson laying on Delilah's lap. He's got power that's unimaginable, but he's asleep. Church, we have the power of Almighty God inside of us. Let's stop sleepwalking. When you're sleepwalking, you walk by sight instead of by faith. And so Jesus comes to these people and says, you have to wake up. Remember what you have received. Remember what you've heard. That's why we know they're believers. Turn back to what you had experienced. Turn back to what you lived before. Do you remember a time in your life when the spirit was so hot inside of you and you just couldn't do anything except, Jesus, I want to live for you? Do you remember that? Do you remember when you had hope that couldn't be shaken? Do you remember when you believed that the promise of Jesus about heaven and eternity was the greatest thing you ever heard? Remember that? Remember and return is what Jesus says. You're asleep, so this is how you wake up. 
And when you get back there, hold fast to it because you've seen it slip away. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. Figure out what is actually spiritual life and get back to it. Focus on it. Reground your actions in meaning and faith. You already know the truth. Turn back to it. What I'm saying to you this morning is nothing new. Nobody out there like, oh, the Spirit of God's supposed to do something in me? Oh, I didn't know that. But it's a reminder to come back to what we know. Jesus says to them, your work is unfinished in the sight of my God, meaning you can look like you're doing stuff, but God sees, right? God knows what's going on. And the, uh, the word actually means, un, the word for unfinished actually means empty, unfulfilling. What Jesus is saying to these people is, you do a lot of stuff, but nothing you do pleases me because you are a fake. You are a facade. Your works are empty and useless because it isn't done by the power of the Spirit. So repent, turn back, turn around. Don't keep going that way. And if you don't repent, I will come like a thief. Thief, the point is, you're not expecting the thief to come. You're not watching for him. Kind of like how the city was destroyed twice. You're not watching out. And so this one sneaks up on you and you're not ready for it. So Jesus says, wake up or I will come wake you up. The telltale of a sleeping Christian is that they argue they aren't asleep by what they do. They believe that they can dress themselves up so well that they can fool everybody and probably even God. Jesus, in this last part of the passage here from verses four to six, uses the picture of clothing Thinking of it as like putting on a, a cover-up, a disguise, a mask versus wearing the real deal. Remember, this is a place partially famous for dyeing clothes, choosing colors to stand out and be noticed so it would get the attention people around. So Jesus says to them, listen, I want you to have clothes that are not dyed. I want you to have clothes that don't need to be dyed to cover imperfections. Let me read to you verses four to six. It says this, yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He says, I have a few left. Everybody around these people, these few who are left, are just playing a game. But there are some people in the middle of this group that are not living empty. And Jesus says, I see them, I know them, and they will walk with me. They are being faithful regardless of what others are doing. They're not caught up in the self-deception of this church. And because of that, they will be, here's what he says, they will be dressed in white. Does that mean that in heaven we'll have white robes? Will they be form-fitting robes? Will they have legs? Are the people who have gone on already dressed in white robes in heaven? Well, let's, let's remember that most of God's people, almost all of God's people who have died have left their body behind, so they're not dressed in anything right now. They're spirits. Other than Elijah and Enoch and Jesus who ascended, everybody else's body's still here, right? So not yet. But the point here is not what will be dressed in heaven. The point is this. 
that God says to them, I'm going to give you a robe that, that symbolizes purity, that symbolizes miraculous purity. For this city, the cool thing was to be able to get a robe in any color you wanted, to change it from the, the normal color of a sheep into some different color. But the process was pretty much covering up the off-white nature of wool and the imperfections around it. Instead, what Jesus says is, I'm going to give you a white robe that is impossibly white, a robe that only God can make for you, you can't make for yourself. Believers, are you feeling this? We get from God what we can never do ourselves. You can't clean your life up enough for him, right? So what happens is the grace of God gets poured out on us and wearing that robe is meant to represent the, the grace of God giving us righteousness that we could never earn on our own. The point is being a Christian is not just to come color yourself however you want, make people think whatever you want. Christianity is not just to make it whatever you want. It is something that God does in us and works out through us by his power that we could never imitate. So this week, our challenge is to let God show us if we're asleep. If we've been so wrapped up in what's fading away that we've forgotten that we actually live for what will never fade. If we've been living in our own strength by our own plan or if we've remembered to live in the power of God walking his path. Christian, the invitation is to wake up. Do you feel hopeless, frustrated, worn out, like you can never get to the top of the hill? Do you find yourself excusing spiritual habits as something that you can cut off when you don't have time? Oh, I've just had a busy week. I can't make it to church. Oh, I'm just so tired. I can't spend any time with God. Oh, finances are tight. I can't give to the church. Do you find yourself excusing spiritual habits for the sake of physical realities? flipping the whole thing upside down? Wake up. Jesus came to a church that looked alive, that had a reputation for being alive, but Jesus said they were dead and they were asleep and they needed to wake up. Today, what I'm asking is, will you ask God to wake you up? Will you ask God to wake you up? And will you allow him to show you where that is and what to do in it?